Good evening, you're listening to The Consequential Podcasts. Uh, it might not be evening where you are, sorry. Pretend it is. This feels like an evening show. Future radio! But it's, yeah. but it's light outside for the first time on the podcast. It is light outside, but we do feature adult content, by which I mean we talk about comics, but we swear quite a bit. Basically we have to shut the blinds in order to continue recording. Yeah. There's yeah. a lot of dick jokes too. Yeah, it's the podcast equivalent of that thing where you eat a tiny bird, but you have to cover your head to, to hide the shame. That's a thing? Yeah, that's a thing. Like a poussin or something? Is that a thing your cat does? No, smaller. It's like a, it's like a French thing. You cook a bird in brandy and then you eat it. Oh, is it still alive when you cook it? Or is Maybe. that barbaric? Why do you have to curl your head? Uh, to hide, hide your shame from God. The bird shame? Okay. Can we not just have a fucking gigantic croak and bouche and be done with it? Yeah, probably. That sounds good. Lucy, what have you been reading? I've been reading all sorts of things. You didn't introduce me. What if the people don't know who I am? This is Lucy Boys. Lucy Boys is going to tell you what she's read. Yay. Um, I know that I don't get introduced. Uh, You'll get introduced when you talk. We've just changed the format. Okay. I like it. You're mixing it up. Yep. I like to keep things fresh. So what have I been reading? I read The Black Project by Gareth Brooks. Not to be confused with Garth Brooks. No. Um, and uh, it was horrible. It made me feel dirty. Yeah. People do that. We talked about it when, when I read it, but yeah, go on. How did you feel? It was very... How did it make you feel other than sticky and horrid? So it was very funny because the tone was so completely matter-of-fact when he was talking about these just utterly, utterly bizarre things. So for, for anyone who's not familiar, it's about a young man in a suburb somewhere outside London building himself a succession of girlfriends out of craft materials because he's sort of completely isolated from his peers, from his family, and he, he has no means of getting life experience, and so he's sort of doing this as a substitute for it. You know, he goes to the library and asks for books about sex so that he can find out what the vagina of his cardboard girlfriend should look like. Yeah, yeah. so the original description that I, I took to this when you first made, makes a series of girlfriends out of craft materials, that'll be quite creepy, I thought. <laughs> oh, it's got a very matter-of-fact tone, I thought, when I opened it. Oh, God, it's basically just fucking felt, like literally the man is fucking felt or footballs or it's a series of implausible craft materials that a disturbed young man puts his dick in and it did make me a little squeamish it's Adrian Mole gone sinister and wrong yeah more sinister and more wrong sinister and wronger exactly I mean there's some fantastic lines in it it's got a very kind of it's got a very suburban 1980s British sensibility about it which I enjoy because it's subtle but definitive as in I know exactly what it's riffing off but I can't really describe how it's doing it or why it's one of those kind of weird cultural feeling type things yeah and yeah some cracking lines you know there's a his sort of interactions with adults outside his family seem to be limited to the kind of insane headmaster of his school and his kind of caretaker assistant and a guy he knows who works down the local shop called Clive and there's there some real problems around beards well yeah there's a subplot that um that Summerfield or Safeway or someone have taken over the supermarket and Clive's going to be made to shave his beard off, but he doesn't want to because that beard's been in his family for generations, <laughs> which yeah. I, I enjoyed a lot as a joke. That's one of the most Adrian Mole lines. It's, yeah. Yeah, it's where you take something sort of absurd that Nadal said and pre- presented at face value as mm. a child. Um, mm. Yeah. It does feel a little bit like it could all just be happening upstairs in a broom closet in a very sticky way while Abigail's party is going on downstairs. Mm. Yeah, it's that, that sort of not all is right 
um, sense, but it really sort of, it feels very sympathetic towards him. Yes, and it's, it's a coming of age story. He ends up in a better place than he started, yeah. you know, with the prospect of hanging out with some older girls and the maybe a friend. fascinating as well. It is, it's very dense and rich and it must have taken a fucking long time to do because half of it's embroidery and lino cut. Yeah. That's, it's just terrifying actually, the intricacy of it. Yeah, and I think that sort of makes it worse that it's made of the same materials because it sort of it sort of feels very much that it is his journal of it then because he sort of feels like this is the thing he'd be creating. And even kind of Brooks as creator, he's doing a sort of equally seedy thing, one kind of meta level above by documenting it. It's not quite as bad as sort of making these horrendous girlfriends out of craft materials, but he's sort of you know he's he's buying into the idea that this is an okay he did thing make to them, do. Though. He actually um, made them for the for the Lakes Art Festival last year. He he made a couple of them for our Um and I was talking to him about this, and he said it did actually feel like crossing a line doing this. He wasn't sure about doing it, but he did make a couple of them. Did anybody do a sick at them? I don't know. A little sick. I don't know. <laughs> or a big one. It's. I mean, it was essentially you know marketing for the book and. As such, is maybe the most terrifying marketing proposition anyone has ever come up with. There are a lot of people who are just going to not want to read the book if they see those things, but they're probably There's, the kind of people who wouldn't enjoy the book anyway. But they might have bought it. It is, I mean, let's be honest, it's not something that is leaping both hands for mainstream appeal, is it? True. <laughs> Very true. Uh, yeah. I but I loved it. It's beautiful. I, I liked it a great I struggled deal. with it. But I, I read it alone whilst my um, partner was out at work, and it was quite creepy to do that. I should have read it in company. Quite possibly. Quite but maybe possibly. not, you know, on the bus or anything. No, maybe not on no. the bus or anything. I might have had ideas. I, I have this problem where I keep uh, buying copies of Sex Criminals when I need to travel. And there's no way I'm not going to read it on public transport, but I have to be quite careful. Um, can that's, you just comicsology that shit, or are you collecting story. the singles? I'm collecting the singles. I had that with Greek Street. I was reading it on the train back from Greek Brighton. Greek Street's worse, because there's no... Sex Criminals is a fun and light and respectful yeah. thing, and Greek Greek's Street is just... Look, look at tits. Just look at tits. tits here. It's, it's horrible. tits. But not, not like this. But not, not like this. Friends. Not like this. And no, he doesn't. Um, they're just, they're just, just soft. I don't know, I just... Well, they I, can't I've never see really... that you're doing that, but they know you're doing it, and it's a bit weird. I'm grasping my breasts in the office, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> yes. What, what else have you read? I read uh, The Auteur. You did. And uh, Secret Avengers, which do you want to come back to you later? Yeah. Because we mostly all read all of them. We, we did, we did. It also says here on my notes, this is how professional we are. I have notes. I'm flicking through them. That you read Just So Happens. I did read you Just did. So Happens, which we talked about last week after you'd finished reading it. How did you find it? I enjoyed it a great deal. Um, I saw what you meant about the art style being less dense than but similar to now of brown. The whole thing is just kind of... like The, the artwork is less less complicated. The, mm-hmm. the plot is less complicated, but it lives in the same sort of space. It absolutely does. And I think my favourite thing about it was how subtle the storytelling was and how much it conveyed with not very much... Yeah. So, I mean, having finished reading it, I was like, oh, that was kind of a story about a thing. I won't tell you what the thing was in case you want to read it. Um, and then, but then actually I was like, hang on, it made me feel stuff and I learnt things. And that was impressive. Yeah. But she did a lot with not a huge amount. It's a great book and it's very, very confident for a first time mm-hmm. writer and artist. 
very quick as well, which is always good. Am no. I not allowed to say that? You can say that. I, I like it. Well, it's like I, the ninety-minute movie. I, I'm sad exactly. for the demise of the ninety-minute movie. Oh God, so am I, because so often it's bloated out to put in more crap by people who shouldn't be making films. Mm. No, Speaking I, I of like which, the auteur. Yes. Um, which is about a absolute dickhead of a movie producer who makes terrible shit looking for the path to truth and enlightenment mm. in movies. With the help of a mystical guru who feeds him a lot of drugs. And snake venom and, yeah. So I read the first two pages about 20 minutes ago. Well, longer than that, but before I came down to the podcast. Um, two, three, I, I flipped through it anyway. And just... I found the art. You were talking about your health issues. How did you find the art? Preferable to the bum trouble. Yes. Um, but only only marginally. No, I, I didn't I didn't enjoy the art and it put me off. There's there's something there's something a reasonably common style, a thin line work, scratchy, lots of colours, lots of contrast, kind of riotous stuff, lots of very round edges, not a lot of straight stuff, not a lot of hatching. But I sort of associate with the wanky, over-published end of, of indie comics where there probably isn't any storytelling and the, you know, the artist probably has graffiti in his biography somewhere, that kind of like bullshit skate punk fuckery. Um, it reminded me of that in a really bad way and I was just put off. I really like it, um, which is why I forced both of you to read it, but it's not something that I think is going to be universally loved. Um, Lucy, what did you make of it? I didn't dislike the art as viscerally as Roger did because I carried on reading the whole thing and I won't do that if I get an ugh reaction. Um, it was... I liked it better than Secret Avengers. I'm just going to get that one out there. Yeah. Of the two of them. But um, it was interesting also from a kind of... I hadn't seen comics do the sort of David Foster Wallace style hyper-reality thing before. And that was kind of interesting. Particularly not something that's being published as single issues. Yeah. Um, so that was one of the things that interests me. Is like It's quite a weird thing to publish as single issues. Yes. Um, I'm interested in who they think their audience is. So are is they. Is it you? <laughs> I think it might just be me and the three people who've read Rick Spears stuff before. Mm. Um, I, did, I didn't not enjoy it. I very much enjoyed the murderous acts precedence. That was a good thing. So for me, it's... it's, it's the, one of the reasons I enjoyed it so much is that it sort of feels like something that no one else is really doing in that space, sort of published by, published by Oni, which is a fairly mainstream publisher, not massive, but reasonably mainstream. And just weird, um, there's a sort of, so I think what you, you find to be off-puttingly colourful and uh, scratchy, I found to be a glorious sense of, fuck it, we're doing this, we're doing this weird fucking story, it's going to go fast, wee. Just had you this were sort strapped of weird... into the roller coaster and ready to go. Yeah, and Mr. Hart was standing this... at the side saying, I don't like the look of this. <laughs> Pretty much. I think at the, the point at which someone placed a business card for a snake oil shaman onto someone's sad little drug induced erection was the point of the thought, yeah, this is. This, this really is, going is, places this I is like. a comic I like. I didn't get that far. That would have sold me on it. Well, there we go. Well, a business there card on a weenie. Yeah. This is why you don't give up two pages in. I was busy. Go back and read it. No. Okay. But it has that. It's funny. Okay. I'll show it to you so it's explained. 
It's a dick joke. We did promise dick jokes. So for me, actually, the writing was a lot weirder than the art. And the writing for me kind of... It carried the art by imbuing it with that extra bit of weirdness. The writing's very uh, propulsive in the sense that there's not necessarily much correlation from one thing to the next. It's also sort of fragmented timeline, which... It was reasonably hard to follow, but I quite enjoyed being taken on that ride. I didn't dislike it. How does the coherency... Coherence? Measure up against change. Oh, it's way more coherent than, than change. Um, far, far more. It's like it's a it's fragmented narrative in the. It's it's like a Tarantino fragmented narrative. You know what the fuck's going on because oh. they've done it right. Secret Avengers is a thing we've all read. Yes. Hart, you go first. Murdoch, make me a cocktail. You liked that, did you? I really did. Um, Secret Avengers, it's, it's Alice Cott's new thing. Um, Secret Avengers, it's, it's, it's a Avengers Black Ops. It's the 80th Avengers title know. that's currently on the shelves. Um, it's, um, it's Alice Cott's new thing. Um, yeah, yet another, yet another Avengers book. Dirty Trick Squad, Black Ops, the usual thing. It's got, who has it got? Black Widow, Spider-Woman, Nick Fury, um, Agent Hill. Like Coulson. Coulson, yes, Coulson. Um, and um, surprise bonus appearance from Modoc, which always gets your dander up, Mr. Conrad. I, I do like a little bit of Modoc. Modoc is. Um, it, it, to, you know the guy, there used to be the Journal of Modoc Studies. Yes. The guy that wrote the Journal of Modoc Studies got upset when Marvel started using Modoc again because it wasn't really his thing. And that's why he stopped writing <laughs> the faux scientific or faux academic Journal of Modoc oh, Studies. But yeah, no, he's one of those sort of ridiculous 60s Marvel things that I really, really like. And he's got little spider legs now, and he's kind of camp, which is weird. That He's, he's retired, maybe, the, the comic plays with this. And I'll come back to this in a second, but um, retired from supervillainy to go and work for S.H.I.E.L.D. on a kind of consultancy basis because there's, there's, there's a cute, well, maybe slightly on the nose little joke about the fact that they had to hire him because he used to be a terrorist and S.H.I.E.L.D. doesn't negotiate with terrorists, so they had to hire him. Um... It's full of weird little asides, which Alice Scott is quite good at. Some of them are a little bit too blunt, but it's it's fine. It's it's still funny. Um, like the thing about the fact that they never decided whether whether the M stood for mental mechanic or mobile. They kept changing it, uh, so um, they kept they kept changing what it all stood for. Hmm. Um, they 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 changed it so it's mental organism designed only for killing, but then killing was too strong for the kids line, so it was hmm. combat. Or uh, something ridiculous. Yeah. Now, and Murdoch, Murdoch is, is, is daft as balls, and they've done the only thing you can do with Murdoch, which is make him daft as balls. So he's scuttling around doing mad science and boasting about how good he is at it, and then refusing stubbornly to make Agent Hill an old fashioned. Um, it's it's fun, it's trying, we, we said this earlier, and I'm sure we talked about this, it's trying a bit hard in places to be Hawkeye, it uses Hawkeye. Um, he uses jokes from Hawkeye twice. Doesn't work as well the second time. The Spider Woman no. one doesn't work. The Hawkeye one works because of the implication that wherever that version of Hawkeye goes, he takes the Hawkeye with him. Yeah, so a bit conflicted on that because I like that they're. Obviously, Marvel have to spread all of their shit over a whole load of franchises, and you get sort of Hawkeye going into space and flying jets concurrent with the guy who can't keep his life together and his trousers have mm. fallen down. Yeah, um, I like that they're using that version in this, and that there's a sort of vaguely consistent version based around the Matt Fraction run. 
but at the same time it just feels like borrowing jokes and borrowing the tone to a certain extent and it feels like it just doesn't work anywhere near as well it borrows the art style too I mean the whole comic felt like it was trying to be set within the tone of current Hawkeye but yeah. not quite landing it because it turns out really that sci-fi doesn't sit that well alongside it also Alice Cott is a less experienced writer yes um, which I think is mainly the point I liked it but his inexperience shows I don't, is, is that oh god is that cheap he feels like early Warren Ellis a lot of the time that's true Actually, like, if you follow him on Twitter it's a lot like following, following Warren Ellis on Twitter a few years ago it, in a good way it's still fun yeah no I think he's uh, I enjoyed it but it felt as it was sort of in this weird place of cramming in all the characters you know from the films being very continuity heavy um while at the same time sort of lifting from other better books and it just felt like an uncomfortable mix for me. I also know nothing about Spider-Woman so I found that bit a little confusing. She hypnotises people. I thought she was them with electricity. Does she have any connection to Spider-Man? Uh, she was created in the 70s to extend copyright on Spider-Man. Yeah. What did you make of it, boys? Fighting back females. Uh, I okay, so I'm not the target audience of Secret Avengers. I found really it so not. boring I could barely get through it. I did not care at all about any of the characters or any of the things that happened to them. Didn't particularly like the art style and the writing did nothing for me. That's fair. so this is one of the things that bugs me about the um, particularly revival after a while or reassembled superhero books, is that they depend so heavily on you having a pre existing relationship with the material that as a jump on point a lot of them are miserable. So my main my main kind of connection with the material is I've seen the majority of the pre-Avengers Assemble films and mm. that film itself, yeah. which did varying things for me to varying degrees, but overall didn't really captivate me either. So, yeah. I mean, so I they were perfectly enjoyable to watch, but I'm not going to go and see Winter Soldier just because I don't I'm care sure that much. Can, I'm sure it'll be a good film problems. if I get around to watching it at some point, mm. which will be on Netflix, but I'm not going to mm. rush to the cinema to see it, nor am I going to rush to read Issue two of Secret Adventures. Not even for cocktail Modoc. I just, I just didn't care. Just, I am. just don't care enough about Modoc. Modoc means nothing to me. Can... It means mental organism designed only to kill him. <laughs> Thank you, Dave. <laughs> You're a bad man. Yes. Also, it might be metallic. Or mechanized. Yeah. Or mechanism. Rather. Look, I spent twenty minutes today trying to find the right AIM T-shirt to buy, so I'm clearly the right audience for this, and it didn't land that well with me. As in AOL mm. Instant Messenger. No. No, you did use that for quite a while. It's built into OS ten. No, advanced idea mechanics. Modoc's old outfit, right? Yeah. Modoc so I that one of the other problems is my my acquaintance with Marvel continuity comes mostly through X Men. And my acquaintance with non X Men Marvel continuity comes mostly through Next Wave. So basically I was retroactively piecing it together from stuff that Warren Ellis was parodying, so yeah. Aim. Oh, are they beyond? Yes, fine, okay, these are not the broccoli people. It's, <laughs> mm. Right. Hey, it's mm. the old yeah. lot of the broccoli people. Mm. So basically, Secret Avengers, our, our summation is, it might be alright if you like that sort of thing. Yeah. You should probably still read Next Wave, because it's funnier and it has Everyone should read Next Wave. Next Wave is glorious. It's got a theme song. It does have a theme song, I've forgotten about that. Anyway, we talked about that in the comedy one quite a lot, so... Mm. Next Wave. Should I read Next Wave? You might enjoy it. Yeah, it's, it's derpy as ball. Do you like? You, you can cope with a little bit of slapstick and. Uh, oh God, yeah, I'm not a yeah. humorless monster all no. of the time. 
I think I think you would enjoy it. You probably wouldn't get like maybe ten percent of the gags, which are deep cover nerd jokes. Yeah. It features weird sewage monsters doing the West Side Story clicking dance. I like that clicking dance and all interpretations thereof. And I'm wearing a West Side Short Story T-shirt. He's so wearing a West Side Story T-shirt. Fucking it's hell! Not even yeah. that. It's all coming again. together, people. It's all coming together. Sinister. Like most heterosexual West Side Story T-shirt I've ever seen. Thanks. Roger Hart. Hello. Told you I'd introduce you. What have you been reading? Uh, I've been reading. What have I been reading? I have been reading Eric Powell's Chimichanga. Um, what did you make of that? I'm going to list them. No, just say that one and then talk about it. Is that how we do it? It's a format. It's, it's what we're it doing. Yeah. I thought it's you were mixing we, it up. It's what we've been doing for the last 20 minutes. We are mixing it up already from previous weeks. No, we can't mix, double mix. We mix up other things. If we mix it all up, it'll be incredibly confusing. Might even be incoherent. Yeah, we couldn't have that. It would be a worry. Fragmented narrative. Mm. No, so Chimichanga is a little standalone by Rick Powell who does The Goon. The Goon is... Oh, God, The Goon is fucking delightful. I stopped reading it for a while because it... It did go off the boil for a bit. I'm told it came back, but... It I, got serious. Um, yeah. And po-faced with it. It always had serious moments. So, it, The Goon is... It's hard to tell when it's set because it's got a kind of dust bowl ambiance, but Chimichanga is present day and Goon could be. It's kind of sort of dust bowl noir, but it's very slapstick. If you... If you, if you, if you, did you either of you watch Carnival? Yes. No. Go back and watch that shit. It's I will amazing. do, I know. You've told um, me a billion times. But it's basically the slapstick... It's, it feels like the slapstick Carnival. Um, mob enforcer, ludicrous kind of brute, um, dumb petty criminals defending a town against zombies from run by a nameless priest so it, it, that's, that's the goodness it's, it's got a great sense of humour it occasionally strays a little far into wacky for my taste but it always tends to just about nail it how wacky does it have to go because I mean there's a whole episode in Spanish with El Hombre de la Gato the uh, <laughs> giant occasionally placid lizard man sometimes gets a bit angry yeah. oh yes he's Doctor what's his name Doctor 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 Alloy Doctor Alloy Doctor Alloy makes a hideous lizard man who then gets defeated and tamed and becomes Doctor Alloy's butler but sometimes he goes off the deep end and becomes giant again and rampages through the town in the comic yeah interesting so anyway it, it's, it's got that exact same sense of humour it's got the art style is because it's, it's sort of short and a bit more compact the art's a bit more studied, it's a bit more like a goon cover, it's a lot more detailed than the goon. Certainly in the colouring. Um, yes, the colouring's very nice. It's kind of washy and not, not watercolory, but painty in a way that I wasn't expecting. Again, like the goon covers. And it's the story of, is it Lola, Lula? It's been a couple of years since I've read it, so... There's a, there's a little... Cir- say, it, it's set around a circus, and there's a little bearded girl who goes out to buy a chimichanga, and... Um, ends up trading it to a... Sorry, ends up trading her be- a lock of her beard hair to a chronically flatulent witch in exchange for a monster egg. Where's the chimichanga? Um, the, the monster that hatches out of the egg eats the chimichanga and then she names him Chimmy because she's upset. And she's initially pissed off with him and then he looks so sad and he's this giant... He looks like some sort of mutant, derpy dog creature. He's... It, it's a... This huge, chunky-ass thing. A, a blend of kind of adorable and scary. Mm-hmm. And she takes him back to the circus, and the circus half, sort of half accepts and half rejects him, and some of the circus don't like him and conspire to get him chucked out, and he gets thrown into the dog pound. Meanwhile, the little girl is um, imprisoned by an evil pharmaceuticals company, and so they have to go and rescue each other. And it's... I guess it's kind of young adult. It's got young adult sensibility. It's, it's, it, it is quite slight. 
I think it's sort of written for younger children than that, but in no way suitable for them. Yes. <laughs> it sort of reads like the worst Ladybird book, like one they commissioned yeah. when they were on a fucking bender in, uh, in Guadalajara. Two, do- two dozen animals. And- <laughs> no, what, it, what, I, what I love about it is um, that if the politics of it were any more simplistically blatant, it would be a crayon sign at an Occupy march. It's just incredibly just balls out this is what's wrong with corporate America, wrapped up in this charming little kind of dust bowl fairy tale. So the bad guys are an evil pharmaceuticals company who just come out and say, the witch tries to sell the cure for her chronic flatulence. We're not buying this because it cures people. And then her flatulence returns. You mean it cures it for a couple of days and then it comes back worse? We'll make ourselves rich. Um, That kind of thing. They imprison the little girl and cackle about it supervillainishly about how they can do whatever they want because they've got money and their lawyers are great and no one would ever dare argue with them. So, yeah, you've got the sort of bad guy lawyers and pharmaceutical company. And then at the end, Lola, Lila, the girl, goes off on a rant about how... um, Money doesn't run the world. People's mummies run the world. I'm going to write a letter to your mummy. And she's, she's reading out this kind of slightly snide... The kid is a little bit wiser than her years and a little bit snazzy, and she's reading out this slightly snide letter in the background. And you think, oh, God, is it really going to do it? After all of this tone, is it really going to do it? Is his mum going to show up and bollock him? Because that would work, but it would be a bit crap. And then Shimmy just eats the guy. <laughs> and Lula doesn't really realise... Oh, where did he go? And then Jimmy coughs up his credit card and they solve all of their problems by absconding with vast quantities of corporate money. And it's just got a wonderful sense of humour. It's, it's it like a one yeah. yeah. Okay. It's a little it's a little hardback, it's probably about a hundred pages. Hmm. It's light, it's delightful. Eric Powell also did the uh, alternate cover for the auteur, which I mm. presented to you people, and you didn't even care about I'm, Actually, the one thing I enjoyed about Secret Avengers was the alternate cover that had little duckies on it. The ducks were good. I liked Owl Modoc. Mm. That was the thing I liked. Mm. I'm sorry. So apart from that, you've kind of been on a Gillen and McKelvey spree, haven't you? Mm. Talk to us about that, you oh. fucking monster. <laughs> Don't just sit there and stare at me. <laughs> God, I'm playing chicken with an idiot. <laughs> um, yes, so Gil and McKelvey, who I have tremendous fondness for. Um, so I read the final volume of Young Avengers, um, where... Did the... it give you the squiffy feelings in your tummy? Yeah... It did actually. And uh, maybe a little bit elsewhere after like Sex Loki appeared. Did he have the feels and also a boner is what you're trying to say? <laughs> Pretty much. I had the feels boner. Oh god. So you yeah. A tumbler. They, uh, There's a line at the end of that book that's basically taken seven trade paperbacks to pay off. Um, which is quite impressive. Which one? Uh, I do intend to read this, I'm sorry, please don't spoil me. Yeah, no, I'm not right, saying. Right. Because I haven't read the James into Mystery stuff, which is, I assume, what you're referring yeah. to it to make up the full seven. Yeah, well, there's always the... There's always the um, uh, no, let's just skip it. We'll, we'll talk about it later. Okay. So, yeah, it, it's... Everyone knows about you know, Avengers. It's all over the tumblers. It's, it's, it's delightful. It's tumblers. It's... Well, that's, that's too bad, even for the internet. The We're tumbling, Dave. We're tumbling right now. It's a beautiful thing. It's chock full of McKelvey's wonderful art, and it upset a lot of people. The comic or Tumblr? Either way. The comic. And it upset a lot of people, quite rightly so. Well, not quite, sorry. uh, Not quite rightly so. What am I saying? 
it upset a lot of people who deserve to, to be upset. It rightly upset them um, by having the universe be saved by the awesome power of hot boys knocking each other. I, I did enjoy that. I enjoyed that a lot. Um, and then ends up being kind of more or less a bit a majority queer superhero team, which is just sort of a little bit touching. Um, Felt a little bit um, tacked on, but it was handled playfully enough that yes. it was... Um, that well, it they'd, they'd all had some indication of yeah. that. Uh, no, it was... It was I, I, I feel like there's not masses of point talking about Young Avengers because it's been so extensively covered. Go and read it. The, it's pretty good. It's really good. Um, once again, every, every issue seems to have a couple of pages, usually a two-page layout where McKelvey just gets to go nuts. And this has some fine ones. It's also got a pretty stellar guest cast of yes, artists. Yes, the final two issues last... are a rotating sort of guest piece. Um, very nice. Has it got Annie, Annie Wu? Yeah, um, Emma Vicelli. Is it Emma Vicelli? Yeah, Emma Vicelli. Um, of course it is. It's slightly Ward, feet, but not that camp boys um, looking dotingly at each other. Of course it's Emma Vicelli. Well, that could be any of their friends. Yeah. Um, who else? Lots of people. Um, Matt Wilson seems to have coloured everything. Yeah, he's, he's a busy man. He colours all the stuff that Geordie Belair doesn't cover. Mm. Mm. Between the two of them, the, the sort of Venn diagrams of comics mm. colouring coverage. But yeah, the, so the final the final two issues are set at this club night, the sort of end of year bash to celebrate the fact that they survived another year. And it's Gillen sort of talking about music and it's got that club ambiance. And that reminded me of Phonogram Singles Club, which made me read Phon- Phonogram Singles Club, which then made me read the first volume of Phonogram. Which is a thing that I've looked at in comic shops a lot of times and just come short of buying. Why should I buy it? Both. Okay. I I think there are very different reasons to both. Um, Having kind of cocked an eyebrow at the description of um, Alice Cott's stuff as sort of, you know, just starting out, maybe a bit immature. Um, I have to say, having reading both bits of Phonogram, Gillen's obviously cutting his teeth a little bit in the first one in a way that he's just polished off in the second one. But you you can't expect someone who's who's just starting out. I mean, because that was his first comic, and that was his first narrative. Oh, was his actual? Talk. Was it actual his first? Yeah. Oh, fine, fine. Yeah, I mean, before that, he was just uh, he was a games journalist. Yeah. And really, very good at it. So um, the singles club, I think, is more accessible. Okay. Uh, it's it it behaves differently. It's it's. McGarvey's work feels a bit more mature in it as well. There's a very interesting thing at the end with the flats, but I'll talk about that in a minute. Am um, I the wrong age to enjoy the musical references? So Am this I was, on the cusp of too young? This or? was my problem with the first one, which was that I had missed a lot of the original music. Mm. Um, no, I think it does a reasonable job of explaining it. Yeah. Um, so the first one's kind of like this pay-on for why Britpop um, and the sort of the 90s British mu- music cultural moment was kind of shit and self-obsessed in ways and important in others. Um, the second one is probably, like, if you know the Long Blondes and Blondie, you'll get most of the second volume of, of Phonogram quite easily. Yeah, the second one is less aggressively tied to a particular moment. Hmm. So the second one is a series of stories, six I believe, set are in the same roughly two to three hour period in a single club night. The club night has a theme, which is no songs, um, only songs by um, female, with female lead singers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there are a set of characters, all of them phonomancers. The, the comics have this concept of a phonomancer. It's, not, it's never totally clear what they are, but insofar as it's ever explained, music is magic in this world and they can do stuff with it. Mm-hmm. And some of what they do is recognisably kind of magic. Yeah, you're persuading people to do things, doing things for reality. Some of it appears to be 
using music to attain a deeper understanding of the universe in a sort of slightly precocious teenage way, but it, it knows it's ridiculous. Crucially, as carries on from the first volume, they're all catastrophic fuck-ups. They're, genu- I mean, they're genuinely dreadful people in the main, but in interesting ways. Hmm. Um, it's got the gorgeous McKelvey art, it's got a little intertwined story in the second The gorgeous Jamie McKelvey features. Um, no, I, I just flustered. The reason, the reason I, I think you should buy it is that it's extraordinarily well put together. It does a surprising job, considering it's a purely a heavily visual medium of capturing something about music. Mm. Um, and it's got some top... You, you know that, that Michael Chabon thing of structuring a paragraph like a joke, going right up to the top pitch of faint ludicrousness and then crashing down to the punchline? Mm-hmm. Gillen's getting really good at that. Um, particularly around playing with either his own pomposity or the pomposity of his characters. It, it does that quite nicely in a number of places. One of the characters is basically his avatar, so... Um, this is my... I assume you mean Cole. Yeah. This is my problem with the first one, is that Dave Cole, the, the lead character of the Fenomance, is such a... He's such a grotesque in the first one. Um, particularly his... It's not exactly misogyny. It's I, He treats... He sort of knows he shouldn't, but still ends up treating women as disposable sex meat. Um, except... Oh God, this is going to go to intentionalism, but it reads like someone who understands a bit what that feels like, but knows massively better. It reads like a decent guy trying to write an asshole with hmm. that l- intermediating layer of insincerity, it just doesn't quite... I, yeah, I sort of read that as this is obviously me. I had better make them fairly badly flawed to counteract that. Um, because if, if the Making first... Making me worse is better. If the first thing you write is Wish an, an explicit Mary Sue, yeah. then you've got to take the edge yeah. off. And I don't think anyone could ever accuse Cole of being wish fulfillment for anyone, or at least not anyone remotely healthy. But... Uh, putting putting someone with a lot of your own tropes into a story is certainly an easy thing to do if you're if you're starting out. Mm. Um, it's th- it's doing that and being aware of it and navigating your own awareness of it is a very tricky thing to do to produce something satisfying to read. And in the first two issues of the first volume of Phonogram, Cole's gender politics are cartoonishly fucked, and about and through the rest of it, he settles down to actually being plausibly unpleasant. Yeah, well, it sort of it sort of heavily implies that. Uh, the, the the sort of cadre of magicians to which he belongs is a matriarchy mm. and he's kicking against it to an extent um, mm. I think they're going to look at that more in the third volume which is allegedly going to be this year it's not going to be this year oh god no um, is that Immaterial Girl? yeah yeah which sort of which goes which is presumably to, about how Asta did whatever Asta did yeah yeah, sort of the lead the lead of their coven is Emily Astor, who is someone who's essentially rejected all of the sort of uh, self-important indie trappings of their music and then just fucked off somewhere else and is being far more flighty. Mm. Um, but it's quite heavily implied that she's essentially split herself in two and, and segmented part of herself away so that it's always hidden behind mirrors. Hmm. Um, Symbolism. It's explicitly called out. It's there's a line, yeah. something along the lines of "cut herself into in exchange for power." It's something like that. Yeah, um, but it's not handled in any way that sort of that goes in heavily for for what's actually happened. 
So the I love I love some of Cole's long speeches in the first one. I love I love, I love the the clear run he gets at some good pretentious sort of this is the culture of musical moment writing, and I like the fact that the insofar as it's ever explained premise of phonomancy fleshes that out such that it can be important as opposed to just indulgent. Mm-hmm. It's it's important and indulgent. Um, I, I would I would rec- I would actually genuinely recommend partly because of I think you'll be more familiar with the music. Um, Starting with the second one and then reading the first one if it grabs you. Okay. I I tried reading the first one when it first came out, which I think was what two thousand and eight nine. Earlier than that. Sorry, no, no. I keep forgetting how old we are. Yes. It came out shortly so after. So very old. It started coming out just as we were dealing um, sorting out comics at Borders. So because I remember being at the Bristol thing when Gillen was first talking it around. Um, it was mid two thousands. Yeah, it was like four or five. Um. But yeah, that, and that was harking so, back to Britpop, uh, and I just missed a lot of the reference points. But I came, I came to some of that music. I knew, I knew a fair bit of it, sort of Kinnicky and um, Elastica, but I, I didn't know quite a lot of the, the Britpop stuff in detail because I was, what, 13 in 1996? Yeah, so... I was seven. Yeah. Sorry about that one. The, the second one is more accessible. Um, there's a really cool thing, though. So the second one has loads of great back matter. Sorry, I'm Unless not... you're 16 now, in which case it's going to make no fucking sense whatsoever. Also, we say some bad words. Don't say those. Your parents don't like them. Unless you really don't like your parents, in which case knock yourselves out. Yeah, in um, which case... Fuck those fuckers. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I'm Fuck the police. That's a musical reference, but that's from the 80s. That's yes. even, even more troublesome for you. I'm sorry. Sorry, hypothetical 16-year-olds. So there's a great glossary to this stuff in the back of the phonogram, but anyway. Uh, they've, the always, they've always had great back matter. The single issues had really good, detailed explanations of things and, mm-hmm. and good jokes about Kaniki. Yes, the, the, um, and the, oh God, the Elastica joke in the second one is just delightful. But in, in the back matter to the, the second one, you get, um, there's, the pencil, the, there's a page with the, the art stuff, and there's the pencil, the pencil sketches. Looks like pencils, very nice. There's the inks, which looks almost exactly, but not but not quite like um, Phonogram One. It's black and white. It's crisp. It's gorgeous. What was what they call the flats? I assume that's industry terminology. Just basically coloured. Yeah. And then the final thing, which is coloured with some actual depth and some interest. And the progression and the tone of them is gorgeous. I found myself wishing actually that they just printed the flats. I love the mad starkness of it. Flatting is generally what happens when it sort of lace it out for the actual final colorist. Mm. So flatting is the sort of stage before that. It's just mm. like, this thing's this color, this thing's that color. Yeah. Coming so the, the, the actual business. coloring is gorgeous because of it, it's done very, very well. It adds a lot of mood. And the panel they show, which is Lloyd, I think, rummaging through stuff from his room, trying to find a Dexys record so that he can write his fucking fanzine, um, is the mood difference is very stark between them. But I did find myself thinking, ooh, it would have looked almost as good. It would have been a different comic, but looked almost as good in those kind of flat tones. It was. It's a very nice. It's a. It's a. The book is just a, a good thing to have. Cool. You sold me. I've also talked for like a fucking hour. I'm gonna have some wine. Mister Cumbria, what have you been reading? Oh shit! I've got to do me as well. Yeah. Sorry. I forgot. Would you like some more Beaujolais? I genuinely forgotten you asked. Of course. Damn, we could have gone home earlier if I hadn't asked. <sighs> Sorry, I'll be quick. No, um, no, I don't mind. Because we've done quite a lot of talking. Lot of what I've read already. Um, I read Saga. Everyone, ah, knows, the new one. everyone knows Saga's good, right? I saw it in a shop. I didn't buy it, but I, I haven't should. read it yet. 
Is well, it good? do you know what? Saga's still good. Really? For all of the same reasons. Huh. Moving on. Um, I also read... Um, our way through this. This, is, uh, this has been a wine-heavy intro. They're drinking a lot of wine. We are drinking Podcast a lot of wine. Podcast listeners, a lot we of are. wine. But I think, crucially, it hasn't, hasn't affected our, our, our... Erudition. Our... our <laughs> so it's a, it's a Jado Beaujolais Village, and... Like, you pay for the name a bit. I wouldn't normally buy it. Look at that, it's right in there. With the wine talk. But, um, because you pay everything off to the name. But, uh, it was... the segment Roger's Little Wine. <laughs> it was really cheap in, really cheap in Tesco, so I thought I'd give it a pop, and it's perfectly fine. I, I prefer a straight Beaujolais or a Deboeuf, but, okay, which, where you also pay for the name, but it, it's better. It, it's perfectly acceptable, it's got that floral freshness. It's just a bit too tannic. I'm quite enjoying it. I also read... <laughs> sorry. Um, I'm not sorry. I also read Change by Alice Cott, which I think we'll go into another time, mm. because it has a lot of the same issues that I have with Alice Cott's writing that Secret Avengers did. The main thing I've been reading, by which I mean I've been fucking mainlining this stuff, is uh, Black Sad uh, <sighs> by Juan Diaz Canales. I love Black Juan Sad. Guanido? Possibly Guanido. Um, I, I read the first two that came out many, many years ago when they came out in the giant floppy European paperback format. Um, I think it was iBooks who published them, who then went went bankrupt and uh, their name got co-opted by Apple. So, fuck those guys. Um, but Dark Horse have been putting them out again. Mm-hmm. In um, gorgeous hardbacks. Yeah, I bought the gigantic um, three-trade hardback. That's the one, yeah. And just burned through that in a couple of days. And so I bought the fourth one, and there's a fifth one out in October, and I'll be buying that as well. I still don't have the fourth one. Um, it's very good. So Black Sad is basically a um, entirely anthropomorphized uh, noir detective story, where basically all of the characters' um, personalities are reflected in what sort of uh, animal they are. Um, hmm. Which isn't mentioned that much, but it's definitely a thing. They Sometimes know they know that they're animals, but they're broadly sort of human-looking. The anthropomorphization is very, very well handled. It's not done um, like the Brian Talbot badges, is it? It's very similar to to um, Brian Talbot's badges or um, Granville. Yeah. Which so this is the thing that put me off going back to Black's Hat is that. I read Granville relatively recently and did not like it at all. Um, and I quite like Brian Talbot because I'm an old 2000 AD nerd and Brian Talbot's a big part of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like weird shit and Granville falls into both those categories, but I just didn't enjoy it. But Blackhead is so beautifully illustrated. I mean, it's just, it's far and away one of the most beautiful comics out there. Um, the artwork's amazing. It's, it's um, entirely covered with watercolours, which just is, gives it incredible depth, and it looks, quite frankly, like nothing else out there. There's a sort of mastery of, of tone in the colour that's just very, very few other colourists seem to be like this. It's intricate. It's, it's just remarkably intricate. It's one of those things that... The writing doesn't quite stack up to the artwork, but the writing is perfectly good genre writing for that sort of and thing. And you can hide a lot of sins behind noir. You can, yeah. Which sounds like a noir line. Yeah. But it's... Um, 
I mean, it's 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 basically all of the, all of the noir tropes hired by someone who's hiding something, beaten up, mm. um, robust but complicated relationship with the police, femme fatale. It does all of the noir stuff. It does all the noir stuff well, but it's really just absolutely horrifying beautiful. racism. Horrifying racism comic. Yeah, it, the racism is the plot, not the. Yeah, it's it's. There's one about clan lynchings. That's not a good thing. It's upsetting. Yeah, it's upsetting done well. Yeah, it's it's absolutely fantastic. I don't know why it's taken me this long to come back to it, other than Brian Talbot's bloody badges. So we were um, we were going to talk about mythology, I think, because we sort of garbled our way through some of it last time. Yeah, we didn't we didn't cover everything we wanted to cover, so now we're back to it. But don't worry, we'll talk about completely different stuff from the start. And, oh, yeah, uh, yeah, and yeah, yeah. You know, you don't need to have listened to the first one, don't worry. So I was thinking about just chewing over, like, I know you've got some, some stuff you want to talk about, about kind of original myth or kind of, kind of myth in comics, or comics as myth. The, the thing I found, I found myself most interested in is kind of the difference between, or the relationship between comics set within myth and um, comics either recreating or doing something with myth, kind of collaging it, I guess. So Greek Street, which we're not going to talk about because we ranted on it all about it endlessly, but it makes a nice sort of bogeyman example, is a comic story set within some myth, and sort of manages to impoverish both its story and the myth in the process. Um, whereas things like the stuff in Sandman are either retelling or manipulating or doing something with mythic structures, and then you get kind of the sort of mythopoeia, mythopoesis, I can't remember which term you're actually supposed to use, but myth creation and myth synthesis and a bunch of stuff. So having witted on about phonogram earlier, the, the kind of the structure of the world in phonogram, uh, where music is magic, that's your kind of base premise, and it's, elu- it, it's, it's alluded to and there's stuff in the background, there's the goddess Britannia and the kind of the, the myth of the rise and fall of, Brit, of Britpop and the, the killing of Britannia and all of that jazz. Um, has a vaguely mythic structure. It's got an, but a, but a kind of a late mythic structure. So, a bunch of I think nineteenth century writers on myth and the relationship between myth and society and myth and religion, sort of took this idea. Oh God, I might be getting this wrong. Um, took this idea that myth was inherently opposed to all that its contemporary value, contemporary in the nineteenth century, was kind of to stand against sort of enlightenment and scientific reason, and to kind of there was there was an inherent tension between mythic thinking and Enlightenment and post-Enlightenment thinking, and more contemporary kind of analysis of myth is is a little bit more charitable and a little less schematized, but not much less. I think the scheme is broader. There's more things that slot into the particular points, but certainly not much less. But something that occurs to me is um, if you look at things like ancient Greek myth or the Egyptian stuff you're talking about about jizzing from the stars. Jizzing um, at the stars. Sorry, jizzing at the stars. Please. Um, did, did we talk about that on the podcast? Well, we didnn't. I just didn't let it hang there. Okay, oh, no. we, we, it was like in the pre-podcast. It was. It was the uh, the moist the tip, the moist tip of the podcast. Um, but um, we, <coughs> you, you've got sort of early. Um, no, I'm not sorry. Um, you, you've got you've got sort of early early myths about the creation of the world or the, the state of the world. 
that kind of, you could almost view a sort of Maslow's hierarchy thing where you've got sort of make the world safe, make the world tractable. Um, make the world. Yes, make the world. Describe the making of the world, describe the existence of man in the world, then explain why life is broadly miserable. First couple of steps on Maslow's hierarchy. Eden, or a bunch of Greek stuff. You don't really get it in the Norse stuff, I don't think. It's, it's more interesting. Um... um. It's all very quick. You do get it. You Licked out of ice by a giant cow, for instance. Yeah, made from the bones of the first giant and that sort of thing. The rec- I love the way the recursive stuff is baked right into the North stuff from the beginning. It's a yeah. fucking delight. But not recursive, cyclical. Um, whereas more recent mythic structures, or mythic structures that emerge later in cultures, particularly those with outsider heroes, tend to be, if you can correlate them and you sort of can hire up them as law, hierarchy, and they're more about explaining man's position in the world, explaining the hostility of the universe, explaining social structures, and reinforcing social structures. What I find interesting about some of the later stuff is that modern synthetic myth in comics feels to me a lot like it's about re-mystifying a demystified universe. I'd say that's broadly fair. So Our science has taught us how the world works, and now we're making it into a weird story again. Yeah, I mean, it's a bit of a glib observation. But you can see it in all sorts of places. And I think this is quite a common trope in comics, and I rather love it. So Planetary, the secret history of the universe. F- um, phonogram, the, the stuff Planetary. sitting underneath music. It's not mythic, I know. No, 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 it is. It's classic hero's journey. Uh, mm, true, true. Um, you have, you know, Elijah Snow. So your classic hero's journey, you have setting out from the village, which in Elijah's case is the trailer somewhere mm. in the desert that sells bad coffee. And you, you may have been, you you may have been an outsider times. from the yeah. beginning, but... And then you come back into society with knowledge, which is exactly how Planetary ends. Who was it that said? It was, I think it might have been a Russian playwright, it was someone that... Um, there are only two stories, a man goes on a journey or a stranger comes to town. Was that... I does anyone remember who that was? was that? I would have yes. the, the, the same story. Was that... Was, it was, it's either Chekhov or Gogol, I think. Okay, I'll have to look that up, and it's going to drive me nuts. But yeah, no, the, um, the, the, sort of, so the early 20th century take on mythology, which is the Joseph Campbell, heavily Jungian take on mythology, mm. it, like Plantry is a very, very strong example sure. of that. And modern, purely synthetic myth, phonogram, any of the mad shit that swirls around London, there are so many... Have I talked about this on the podcast before? From how? Cities that London, are that are London myth. accretes it, yeah. Um, yeah. So does... Um, Paris. Paris and the, 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 the New Barcelona, York a little bit, mm. New York. There's, a, there's an Rome. argument amongst... Troy, if you call it that. ...geographic folk mm. as to which cities can be psychogeographic cities. Mm. And London and Paris are the only definitives a New York mm. might be. I think New York started. I think it's... it's I think New York is... I don't want to have a discussion with those people because no. they're, they're crazy. Um, I think New York is hitting its, like, mythopoetic hockey stick. But... That phrase we didn't expect you to hear on the podcast, ladies uh, and gentlemen. But that's that's a I could have called it psychogeographic exponential growth, but then you'd have had to punch me in the cock. Up and to the right with the psychogeography. It's a graph. It's on the main stage of Glastonbury this year. God, that does just sound like the whitest rap. Like up and to the right with the No, it's just that we're not gonna We're not gonna there. do a white uh, rap about psychogeography. That'll be the worst not, thing you can put in fuck. your ears. Really, be, I was worried for a moment. We'd we'd be the worst podcast ever. Um, so I like things that do a blend of accepted myth and weird made-up shit. So the thing that springs to mind is Pax Romana, which mm. you've yeah. finished but I haven't. But yeah. what I read of it felt like it fell into that category for me. 
To an extent, yeah. It's it's sort of in the Battlestar Galactica vein of repeated histories. Mm. Um, I wouldn't. I don't know if that fully goes into mythical structures, but it's a very interesting take on time travel. How we treat oh, things one, that yes. have come to us as stories, mm-hmm. because history only ever comes to us as stories, and so the reality of it is at a large enough degree of remove to be myth or bordering myth. It's a similar thing to what happens in A Canticle for Labovitz, which is not a comic. I don't know if any of you have read it. No, I kept meaning to. Oh, it's really good. But it's 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 based on the whole history of cyclical. Man is going to nuclearly annihilate himself mm. over and over again. And, you know, mm. any whisperings from the pre-The Last Apocalypse are legendary or rumour or folklore or you know things yeah. that have seeped into the collective consciousness but not strongly enough to make people think maybe we shouldn't blow up the entire earth with bombs probably well, we shouldn't probably shouldn't I would be against that happening and pro it not happening broadly yeah I thought that would, that would mm. substantially be my stance in terms of things where the sort of plays with existing myth and creation myth um, one of the things I read a while ago The Hero by David Rubin starts out with the author as a young boy reading Jack Kirby and saying to himself, I can never do this. This is incredible. Imagine if I could do this one day. And then launches into a take on the 12 Tons of Hercules, mm-hmm. but a weird sci-fi version. So it's him repurposing Jack Kirby's take on mythology to do existing mythology in his own way and yada, 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 yada. So if you like that sort of recursive playfulness... That's definitely a good one. So, something else that occurred to me, I don't have an argument behind this, it's just its just a sort of observation I'm tossing out here, do you guys agree, is that there's a lot of superhero stuff in particular, or you know, even comics lore, and this may be a function of movies, that has become, if not contemporary mythology, certainly contemporary fairy tale. The, the broad brush cultural awareness of Superman and Batman, for instance, is yeah. now broadly such that it's divorced from its existence in comics and has just become a folk trope. So I think some of them, some, some comics aren't, some comics aren't. I'm always very wary of the notion of um, comics are modern mythology. Like that blanket statement I find... This, very this, odd, or superheroes are modern mythology. Yes, you can the, knock that down in a second, but there's yeah. some of it that's true. There's an argument that kind of fits into the, the same thing that the sort of broad strokes horror tropes have done. You know, you can dress up as Anne Frankenstein. Mm. Uh, not Anne Frankenstein, no, 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 A no. Frankenstein. Yeah. I was just, you know... Callbacks. Yeah. Mm. Apparently um, that's a thing. Someone tweeted me, there's apparently that is actually a thing. Anne Frankenstein. Mm. As in someone's cosplayed there. No, no, as in there's like a book or a movie or a B-movie or something, Anne Frankenstein. Yes, there is, yeah. It's like a, a section within a sort of portmanteau film. In, I think it some, might have been Nick, possibly party Nick. In some ways, mm-hmm. you could argue that the... Um, you know, you can have a Batman or a Spider-Man in the way that you can have a Dracula or a Frankenstein now, which aren't mm. in really in any way, as you said, linked to their origins in literature. But to call that the entirety of modern myth, or to call superheroes in their entirety modern myth, is so it doesn't. I I think there are only three that really work in the structure of existing in the public consciousness in the way that myth does. Um, 
which are Superman, Batman, and Spider-Man. Yeah. And they're the only... Yeah. Those characters only work because they broadly fit into the same... Um, the, the, the same structure of loss or sacrifice um, followed Sorry. by... Just to me, that's two men go on, going on a journey and one stranger coming to town. Mm. But, um... Yeah. Their, their loss or sacrifice followed by uh, acquiring knowledge or weapons and bringing them back to mm. back to society. They are culture heroes. They're the ones that they're the ones that live as as culture heroes in that sense. And are there other superheroes of the same era who have done the same thing who aren't there are, mythologized? There are a lot, yeah. I mean so a lot of them have just fallen by the wayside. Mm. Um, and a lot of them just didn't hit the mark in the right way. So Wonder Woman for me, never quite made it. Same yeah. era, similar appeal, but yeah. So for me, for me, those are the only characters that really do it, and it's it's based on a very shaky premise. Mm. Um, but those are probably the sort, of, in terms of perennial popularity, those are probably the big three. Mm. They're what you'll find printed on underpants in a high street fashion store, yeah. being sold to people that would. Who people. need no cultural context. That would bully yeah. people who read comics. Yeah. And I I mean, I've read a lot of comics, but I haven't read masses of any of those. I've read far more Batman than any of them. Mm. But um, there is a sort of... There's a nub of those characters that anyone can get. Um, apart from Zack fucking Schneider, apparently. Um, hey, he did space dildos. We forgive him. No, we don't. But... Spildos. I'll forgive him when, basically when they the sell idea dildos as merch. This person has gone out of their way to do something for other people is essentially the the sort of cusp of that culture hero Joseph Campbell stuff, mm-hmm. and that is probably why they're resonant. There's also a certain fact that they were popular at the time, and there's marketing. Yeah, the, but, but there's also that thing of the, stru- the structural similarity of then being rejected by the tribe and reluctantly re re accepted or not when their value is proven. Yes, and some of the tragic journey stuff. Mm. Yeah. I mean, Oedipus is. Um, in in Oedipus Rex, it is one of these similar sort of figures. He's an outsider that returns, bringing the kind of wisdom from his journey to his his kingdom, his um, his time at Thebes, um, solves a bunch of problems, becomes accepted, and then is spat out again by the machine because of um, reasons. All the all the Oedipus reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, he done a bad. Done a serious bad. What's that? I keep wanting to say House of Atreus. It's not the fucking House of Atreus. Is it? I guess it's the House of Oedipus. I don't think there's a name associated with those stuff. It's just the Theban place. The Theban but anyway, place, yeah. Um, Old Sophocles. Hmm. But you, you've got that kind of, that sort of line. Um, similar, similar, stru- similar heroic structure. But all of the smooshy, smooshy Hegel stuff. Mm. Smooshy old Hegel. Do you want to elaborate on what you mean by smooshy Hegel stuff? I know you were doing Hulk fists at the same time, but I don't know if that's quite clear enough. Oh, um, Hegel, so broadly speaking, and I'm going to simplify it, well, no, I'm going to simplify it, I'm going to forget the details. Um, Hegel's theory, tragedy, correct me if I get any of this wrong, is that you have um, protagonists that embody two competing irreconcilable value systems that end up forced by external circumstances into clashing and what makes it tragic is both the audience's ironic advantage and those characters' awareness of, but inability to or unwillingness to, uh, or unwillingness to swerve away from the conclusion. That is narrative. Yes, not all narrative, not all the time. 
Um, but, Most non-postmodern narrative. But smashing up um, value systems with this sense of inevitability, particularly when there's a free song of destiny, um, and having the lead protagonists be somewhat aware of it does give you some of this tragic moment, particularly when the audience is in on the recursive ironies. Then you move into more modern tragedy with things like Beckett, and you get extra layers of recursion and all that whole imagining Sisyphus happy malarkey. But in terms of in terms of sort of fairly straightforward, a person does a thing narrative. Did I watch that? Um, no, that was fine. Right. What what you frequently have is you have yeah you have the clash of value systems and often the protagonist prevails by rejecting one system or absorbing the uh, the system of their antagonist. Yes. And in the tragic narrative, they don't prevail. Not even the audience yeah. prevails. We just have to watch it all go wrong, either with them not or despite them understanding precisely how. I mean, Antigone is the grand gesture to futility in this regard. She has so many chances. And to a modern audience, it's completely, it's actually very hard to understand why Antigone makes the choices she does, but um, with a kind of cultural materialist ear, you can sort of try and reconstruct the, the tropes and work out how she ends up there. So steering us gently back onto comics and Sorry. comics that work through a lot of that material, um, you wanted to talk about Sandman. Um, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's just, it's, it's a really good example of two of, so, winging this off the top of my head, I think there are like four buckets you could put mythy comics into. Um, set in the mythology, probably shit, Greek Street. Although there must be good examples and Sandman goes there. Um, collaging mythology, Sandman fucking lives there. Um, synthesizing with like brand new mythology, uh, what well, brand new modern Jack Kirby, brand fourth world. Yeah. Um, Actually, maybe only three. What was I, I going to go with for the fourth? Did I? Did I? Oh, I think I was going to draw a faint distinction between um, comics as comics as mythology, Superman, what have you, or kind of brand new synthetic mythology like *Phonogram*. But actually, it's, it's kind of it's broadly similar. Yeah. Um, Saga and yeah, what the fuck the other one's called. I don't know why they live in the same place Prophet, in my head. Prophet. It's definitely kind of the epic tragic sweep. Um, but yeah, so Sandman sets things... Well, it, Sandman does just... It does collaging mythology exquisitely well and then ties it all together to be a kind of synthetic Ur mythology. One of the things I really love about Gaiman's ear for folklore is that he can just... just mash it all up so well. And he's done that separately several times, because yeah. American Gods does it again, but completely differently. Yeah. So in, oh, I think it's Brief Lives, there's the story of the Emperor Augustus Caesar um, and the Dwarf, and Morpheus coming to him in the dream and telling him to spend a day pretending to be a beggar so as to evade the eyes of the gods, which lets him plan for his legacy and escape fate. It's a beautiful piece of writing. It's, it's very nicely drawn as well. Brian uh, Talbot, I believe. I believe. It's it's very clean. Uh, it's, it's very nice. Not drawing badges. No, no badges inside. Um, lots of scabs. Very, very scab-heavy comic. Scabby, even. Yeah. But... Scabtastic? Scabtacular. Scabtacular. Scabberlish... No, let's stop this. Um, Scarab. No. That's, that's the Egyptians, but the mm. yeah, that would be who's the Beetle God? Is it Ketri the Beetle God? Can't remember. Uh, maybe I made that up. There was a Doctor Who comic about it. Mythopoesis. 
There's a really good Doctor Who comic about it, actually. Um, you know they used to run shit tons of them in Doctor Who magazine, and sometimes they were really good. The comics? Yeah. Well, it was... Uh, yeah, Marvel UK used to do Doctor Who comics. But but for years, like, the what the, the kind of wilderness years while the show was off the TV, and DWM was yeah. somehow eking out a, a readership out of people like me. Um, Just wouldn't give up the dream. Yeah, pretty much. Anyway, sorry, no, um, what was I going to say about that? Yeah, so it's... it's it's, it's taking bits from history and, and reimagining them, but you, you've got this wonderful tension between Morpheus as the Morpheus we know he is, because by this point we know all of the mythology of the Endless, or, or at least some of it, and we know that it, it's kind of tying together the universe and building a cosmology. That kind of second second purpose of mythology that I think, um, what's his face, you mentioned him earlier, Campbell, talks about, which is establish, establish, rule, establish the existence of the physical universe and some rules for it, then build a spiritual cosmology, then build a society, the kind of tearing... Campbell, well, Campbell? I, I haven't read anything outside of the hero's journey with Campbell. Like, the hero of a thousand faces. Someone, someone like that talks about this. Anyway, so it, it's got that level on it, but then it also brings in this idea of, of Morpheus being repeatedly mistaken for Apollo and kind of plays with it. It's just, it's just a lovely little thing. So it, it sort of it wears pre-existing myths to build an aggregate myth. Um, I love that about Sandman. So one of the things that I find quite interesting is people like um, Jack Kirby, who very deliberately um, built their own mythologies. So Jack Kirby wrote a 2001 comic, the first issue of which was the film, and then after that he just went off all over the place. Oh, I heard um, this was mad. Isn't that where we get Aaron Stack? Yes. Yeah, so there's characters that are now in the Marvel Universe that came from there. Um, but he... Um, Jack Kirby is not a good writer by any stretch of the imagination, but he was good at building world, um, words. Words? Worlds. Um, and the 2001 stuff was all over the place and kind of tied to the movie and kind of not and was far more expansive and weird because it came from Arthur C. Clarke originally. Mm. But when he had a chance to do it over, he created this thing at DC called The Fourth World, um, which originally was him just getting really shitty assignments and doing whatever the hell he wanted. Like, I think he got to DC after years of mistreatment at Marvel and started writing Jimmy Olsen, Superman's pal, um around which he started building the grand mythology of two battling worlds filled with sort of sci-fi gods. Hmm. Um, which And the way that he went around that, I mean, he, he wrote crudely, drew beautifully, but the way that he went around it was he built a classic mythology with kind gods, tyrant gods, tricksters, um, beautiful, slightly daft people... It went and did the whole thing and it's um, it's fascinating and it's really crude because you can see the seams mm. um, and because it wasn't a time where comics were particularly well known for being well written things because it was the mid 70s and they were still writing it primarily skewed time. for yeah it was a pulpy time and they were skewing for children um but there's still something fascinating about those, and they're well well worth a read. Um, when he was allowed to just do his own shit and go off. I mean, he's obviously still swirling with stuff from 2001 and from Thor and mm. everything that he'd done previously. They were, they're weird and they're interesting. They're well worth looking at. I love the, I've come to love, I initially rejected as stupid. Don't know why. 
the sort of Thor and Asgard stuff in, in Marvel. Um, it's, it's actually quite a charming take on it all. Yeah. The sort of this is science stuff is far less heavily played in the comics compared to the films. Oh, the films need something to tie it together without it getting too weird. Sure. They've got much less time to do it in, but the... Yeah, the slightly fantasy, slightly sci-fi stuff is kind of where the, the fourth world stuff lives as well. It's and a sweet spot for a lot of nerds, Yeah, let's be honest. Planetary borrowed quite heavily from yeah. it as well. The, um, the sort of fiery planet that's coming to consume everyone in Planetary yes. is, is apocalypse from the fourth world. With then that wonderful, um, I think it's drums that just breaks the moment and says, geez, if we start naming these fuckers, can we call this one Toilet on Fire? Yeah. Yeah, there's some good stuff in that. Um, beyond Jack Kirby, Neil Gaiman, and sort of people that we've talked about before, like Isabel Greenberg, who've created their own stuff, how many other people are really sort of inventing whole cloth mythology? Ooh, interesting. Um, I think of Alan Moore as a weird myth maker, but it's not invented whole. So he has done. Um, I have I mean, not there's, read it there's Promethea which oh, fuck no let's not I just let's, let's not get into Promethea but Promethea is his own system of mythology and magic um, like and literature much. and poetry and feminism and a lot of stuff we can't really <laughs> dissect with all the will in the world and all of the air quotes in the world we can't easily dissect uh, Promethea in the time that we've got left and we're not doing a whole podcast on Promethea because I'm not fucking rereading that. He has done that stuff. Um, and there's Voice in the Fire as well, which is sort of myth-making around mm. Northampton. It sounds like he does it better when he applies his own weird stuff to pre-existing things. I would say so. Yeah, I, I think so. Stuff like The League is probably better. Um, so I think specifically it's an easier all read. the kind of strange kind of culty stuff in From Hell. Hmm. There is Which again, we've got vast layers of psychogeography going on. Yes. What about Miola? The Hellboy mythos, yeah. I mean, it borrows a, heavily from Lovecraft. It does, and other bits and pieces, it's all over the place, really, but it's a reasonably coherent mythic system. Uh, particularly, he goes right back to the beginning and talks about the emergence of the world, and that's the stuff he uses there with the, um, is it the Orgu Gen? The, the first men baked out of his I can't remember. I don't, oh, I've lost track. The, the place where Hellboy gets his hand, and it's been so. It, that thing's been going for twenty years, Mister Conway. Twenty, 20, 20 years. years of Hellboy. Well done, Hellboy. Um, Still trying to catch up on all the trades. Yeah. I wish I'd been buying those as I went along because there are so fucking many. How Did you have money in the past though? Is that the problem? No, I oh, didn't. God, yeah. No. We had a bookshop there. We did have a bookshop. Read a lot of Hellboy. Yeah. Um, what would, it actually, what would it actually cost to... Not, not just in time, just, just pure money. If you had the time, I don't know, maybe two weeks, what would, it actually, what would it actually cost to just buy buy all the Hellboy? It must be a couple hundred quid by now. I think there's probably oh, 15 volumes of the main one, then about 15 volumes of BPRD oh, and some associated fuck. stuff. And they're nicely printed, looking at, and they're nicely printed really nice so it's not, it's not your seven quid. No, they're, they're 15, 17 quid. Yeah, I, I reckon it's, it's 12 to 15 for a train. But worth it. It's beautiful. Hellboy, really beautiful. Hellboy really reignited my interest in mythology and folklore, particularly in the early trades where there were a lot of short story compilations. And between those, there would be writer's notes on, mm. um, 
on what influenced it, where particular bits were taken from, what it was riffing on. There's something else as well, though. It's it's a it's a myth collage that also contains myth making. Yeah. So Lobster Johnson, in the Hellboy universe, becomes a Superman-style mythic figure. Yes. Yeah. Um, there's a thing running at the moment in Dark Horse Presents, which is called Hellboy in Mexico. And uh, it sort of cold opens with Hellboy talking to a Lobster Don- Johnson-styled luchador and just saying, no, no, honestly, he's a real person. I used to, I used to hang out with him in the 50s. He was real. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, there's, that, that is actually probably one of the best examples mm. of a hugely layered mythos being created. ongoing. Mayola's universe. Yeah. I, I'd love more movies as well. They're very different, but they're enjoyable. Yes. Um, there's always the potential for a third, but nah, probably won't happen happening. at this point. Does anyone is anyone doing this stuff? If if this is your they're bag, probably, where can they you probably go? are, but I'm not familiar with it. I'm racking my brain. I, if I, anyone knows, please tell us. We want your myths. That sounds quite sinister. Yeah, I would also put in. I know I did this last time, but I would also put in a little recommendation for Joan Harris's um, Gospel of Loki, which, which in is a very good. different way captures a lot of the same tonal stuff. It's not a comic, but you know we'll allow it. We will allow it. There's also a Loki as rock star comic at the moment I haven't read, but which the artwork looks quite appealing for. And of course, Gillian McKelvey are going full on. Oh, music yeah. and myth with uh, the wicked and the divine. Is that musical again? It is, yeah. So the gods they every, know ni- they every like. ninety years, the gods reincarnate as pop stars, essentially, or broad cultural equivalent. Do you reckon they'll bring in a phonomancer, or do you reckon they'll keep it sim- uh, separate? I think they'll probably keep it separate because it's easier to sell two movies. Has it happened cynicism. yet? Is it no? It's out of the they're writing it. Okay, uh, it's coming out they did a promo one-page intro. They 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 are good at. Through the tickling exciting... the internet's balls. Yes, basically, they they will they will tongue your web scrotum good. It's a double team. That's yeah. They'll, they'll look after you. One ball each, unless you're missing a ball, in which case McCalvey has to go around the bum. Yeah, you'll get a delicious metatextual happy ending. I was going to say, why does McCalvey have to do that? But it's, it's obvious. McCalvey. He obviously does. Yes. Yeah. Of course, it's McCalvey. Gillen is not looking at us. He might. In his spare time, he's welcome to, but not for the professionally, purposes no, of Professionally, McGelvey has to do the rimming. Agreed. It's in their contract. And well, that, that seems like a great uh, great point to end this whole horrible thing. Um, so, one thing before we go. Sum up the entire structure of myth and how it relates to comics. Um, okay, so... Uh... Myth is deeply embedded in the human tendency to tell stories. It's one of the earliest examples, and therefore it propagated through into comics. Um, broadly speaking, you have three buckets. You have purely synthetic mythos, you have collage mythos, and you have a comic set in mythos, the latter of which tends to be lazy, but is not always. Um, in a modern society where myths have passed through the step pyramid kind of mass lobbying structure and out again from explaining the world to remystifying it, comics tend to live at the top. Pretty good. You had your eyes closed the whole time there. Were you in your mind palace? Yeah. Someone needs to sweep the floor. Do you want to have a go at that? Or sure. Happy? Yeah. Sounded fun. His was more complex than mine, but also more wanky. Yeah. No, okay, you do yours. Uh, humans need frameworks. Humans love stories. Stories make good frameworks. Books and comics are kinds of stories. Humans enjoy interacting with those. Not necessarily to rebuild up the framework, but just because they're fun to dip in and out of. It's, 
it's the stuff we needed to make sense of the world turned into broad entertainment and that's quite fun. You were looking at the ceiling, is your mind palace tidier than mine? My mind palace floats above me. Nice. Mystically. And I'm not going to do that, but I broadly agree with Lucy, mostly because I've read far more early 20th century cultural theorists than I have Greek drama, and so I'm kind of more on that point. There we go. I did a smile. You did. You did something like a smile. We actually call that a grimace. They're different things. And that's the one I do when I want people to know that I've tried to make them happy. Thank you for telling me at last that it doesn't work. <laughs> the lights have gone out. The lights have gone out. That seems appropriately, mic. appropriately mythic to end this thing. Bye! I'm sorry. Good night.